This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And Monica Heisey, now, okay, you might know her name from Schitt's Creek, obviously, but this novel, this novel, really good actually, oh, let's put it this way. Monica wrote the book that she wanted to read, and we're going to set it up for you guys. But Monica, thank you so much for joining us. Would you set up Really Good Actually for listeners? Sure. Um, Really Good Actually is a novel that follows a 28-year-old woman, or just about to turn 29-year-old woman, really, um, during the first year of her life as a single woman following a very unexpected divorce from her university sweetheart. Okay. This is not autofiction. This is not <laughs> autofiction. This is not thinly veiled autobiography. This is a really fun, wild novel. And Maggie. Yeah, I, I think so. I did go through a divorce at a young age myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew that I kind of wanted to write about the experience, but I really didn't want to write a memoir. And I didn't want to write autofiction or even like, you know, the classic divorce novel, Heartburn, which really is. Basically, she just changed the names. I wanted to also kind of wait a little bit after my own experience so that I could look back and, you know, evaluate how it had gone, really, and what what parts of it were funny and what parts of it were funny in hindsight and what parts of it maybe were less funny than I thought they were at the time. You know, I didn't want to be doing therapy when I was writing a novel. I wanted to do therapy and therapy and write a novel later. (laughs) Okay. And you're covering so much ground. This is a coming of age novel for a 20 something. I mean, what I loved about Maggie, and I can't even imagine this, but she had never lived alone. She went from living in a group home Mm -hmm. in college to having her person and being in this relation. And then they got married. She has never lived on her own. And part of the adjustment for her is figuring out how to be alone and not be lonely. And she's not great at this at first. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of times relationship uh, divorce stories and breakup stories end up kind of being still stories about the relationship. There are these mm-hmm. dissections of what went wrong in the relationship and how each part of the relationship behaved, but I really wanted to write a novel about the experience of being alone in this case for the first time and the ways that people can struggle with that. Maggie has a really cool group of friends. Can you run through who these folks are for listeners? Because they're great. They are yeah. so Maggie has um, a close group of friends in her group chat. Um, she has a friend named Clive and a friend named Amira, and then two friends named Lauren. And to differentiate, we have Lauren and we have emotional Lauren. One cries all the time. One cries never. You can probably tell who's who. Um, And then she also makes a new friend over the course of the novel, another young divorced woman named Amy. So when you're sitting down to write this novel and, you know, obviously you have writing experience, you've done some journalism, you've done television. Those are really different aspects of the writing craft. And here you are, you're deep into your characters' heads. So we know you start with the idea that you want to write about second chances and divorce and processing all of this. And, you know, what happens when you divorce and you don't have a fancy house and a wine cellar. <laughs> but how did you really dig in to really good, actually? Where did the novel start? 
So I wrote the first, the first thing I wrote is the first page of the book, which is this list of all the reasons that the marriage didn't work out. A lot of, there are some short form pieces kind of scattered throughout the book, Mm -hmm. little fantasies that Maggie has or Google search results or um, text messages and Tinder conversations and whatever. And those shorter pieces were kind of my way in both to the character and the novel because the novel takes place so almost claustrophobically inside Maggie's head. Um, and because there are places where she and I kind of are do overlap and there are just as many places where, where we kind of diverge, I thought I really need to get a sense of who this person is, where we're similar, where we're different, where her relationship was similar and different. Um, before I can start fictionalizing situations for her, I really need to start with character. I feel like TV is the same. If you have really strong characters, the story becomes really easy to write because you know the person and it's just what would this person do in this situation and that becomes a story. So I did all of the short form pieces first as kind of character exercises to get to know Maggie and then started from there. Yeah, I got to say her search history is hysterical. There were so many moments during this book. And not to say that Maggie doesn't have an arc and she doesn't, no, she's great. But oh my God, the lists, (laughs) I was Barking. I was laughing so hard. The amount that you can get from something that simple. I love the idea of a sketch, right? Like you can get mm. an idea of a person in two sentences or you can get the setting in three kind of thing. I think we don't always, you know, you don't always need a lot of time and a lot of space to be able to say this is who you are because part of Maggie is she really lives online. She is a very, very online <laughs> millennial. <laughs> Criminally online, you might say. Yeah. Okay. Criminally online. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. She's criminally online. But how do you let Maggie have her experience and not have your own sort of feelings seep in? I mean, this is, she's really online. I'm really not kidding when I say she's online. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think I, I looked at things that I noticed in myself or others or worried about in myself or others. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, for example, Maggie leans really heavily into the kind of post breakup sort of sexy, sad girl posting online, Mm -hmm. um, which is something that I think about all the time, but that I, I haven't really engaged in a ton myself, but that I'm really interested in. So I think it was about seeing Maggie as kind of a, a place I could work out some of my feelings about some of these things. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to consider kind of both sides, you know, Maggie finds it initially kind of empowering. And like, there is a sense of community to be tweeting, you know, like those tweets about bad dates that are kind of like sexy and sad and Mm -hmm. women talking about their own kind of degradation, but in a sort of winking way. And Maggie finds that comforting at first, I think. And then starts to realize that maybe it's not providing actual community, which is what she's looking for. And I was kind of figuring out how I felt about that kind style of posting through writing it really. And I don't think there's like a definitive answer. People keep asking me like, what's the takeaway of the book, but I didn't write a fable, you know, it's a a portrait of a period in someone's life. I'm sorry. That's kind of a weird (laughs) question to ask about this particular. I mean, there are some novels where you can ask that. And of course it makes But I'm just kind of like, you just hang out with Maggie. Yeah. (laughs) You learn a lot about Maggie. I thought about some things I hadn't thought about in a while because, you know, it's been a minute since I've been 29. But (laughs) at the same time, watching this woman sort her way through, and 
I was never interested in the ex-husband and I like the way you handled this. I was just like, I don't care. I mean, here she is <laughs> with the emails and some of those emails were wild. And I just, he wasn't the point. Yeah. He just yeah. wasn't the point of any of it. I think her friendships with her group chat are awesome. Um, I loved also seeing how her friendship with Amy developed because neither of them, it's hard to make friends as adults. No one ever really talks about this and it's kind of hard. And yet they figure out how to do it despite, I mean, Maggie's going through some things. <laughs> Maggie's really going through some things. Yeah. And Amy, Amy was so fun to write. And mm-hmm. I think it was really like a fantasy that of mine. Like she's a, she's a total fiction. I didn't really have any friends who were getting divorced at the same time mm-hmm. I was. And I, I just was like, what would it be like to meet someone who is going through the same thing, but is basically your opposite in every other way? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how do you find a way to, to connect with that person? Or can you build a friendship on just this one thing? Or does there have to be something deeper to it? And I think Maggie ultimately learns that maybe she was misreading how many things she had in common with Amy at the start. And also making friends offline is very different. I think there are a lot of folks who, because they live online so much, they think they actually have, and maybe maybe some people do. I mean, maybe there are very deep, genuine friendships that come out of being online, but it's really different to share space. Yes. It's really, really different and complicated to share space. And I'm kind of using this to loop back to Maggie's inability to live on her own. Mm. Can you, ma- I mean, can you imagine not being able to live on, I, I I'm very Again, fond it's of like, my dude, but I need my alone time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think again, it was like the book was a really nice place for me to kind of work through, you know, like fantasy and nightmare versions of my divorce. I had lived alone before. I did have an existing relationship with my therapist. And Maggie is someone who I kind of set a little bit farther back. She didn't have that experience. She hadn't started really working on herself. Divorce can really hit you like a a bit of a a train. And it kind of, I was thinking like, what's the biggest version of the train (laughs) that you could have? Because it still still got me pretty good. I was just on maybe like a less intense track in terms of setting her farther back. Like Maggie also is someone who's never been on dating apps before. And there is such a small generation of people for whom the dating world changed while they were in a relationship. And was totally unrecognizable by the time they came out of their first major adult relationship. Um, so people were adjusting not only to being single again, but to an entirely new way of dating and meeting people, the rules of which had just been written, but like just before they got back in, which was is such a crazy idea to me. I have a few friends who kind of went through that with their big breakup. And it, it was like the wild, wild west for them. <laughs> Yeah, it's been pretty trippy watching that. And I have to say, I'm really glad I never had to. (laughs) Oh, you've never done it. I'm not. Well, I mean, I'm also old and settled, but I I just, I think I would have a heart attack. I I genuinely do not know what I would do because one, I would probably spend too much time on it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I wanted to convey in the book as well that it can be exciting. It can be exciting and fun. It really can. Everyone has bad stories about the dating apps, but you know, there are also some really fun and wild experiences with people that you might never have met in a kind of like waiting to run into them sort of way. Um, and I wanted Maggie to kind of 
run the gamut a little bit, to have some good experiences and some bad ones and to be confused and scared by it, but also confused and like excited and into it. It's kind of like watching a baby giraffe figure out how to walk. It really <laughs> yeah. is. I mean, yeah. you're kind of like, okay, Maggie, go. But you luck, girl. do look like a baby giraffe figuring all of this out. But, you know, part of this living online thing, too, is body image. And this has mm. been a big thing for women for a long time. And you started early on writing online for local publications in Canada and whatnot. And we all know when you're a woman on the Internet. <laughs> uh, yeah. You got to write some personal <laughs> Oh, you know, I'm delighted we had that moment where everyone was telling all of their stories in great detail. And now I'm like, we don't actually have to do that anymore. You know, you I can know, just I'm make like, stuff up. <laughs> you can really make it up. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I know. But let's talk about Maggie and body image for a second because she is not a size six. Mm -hmm. She's not. She's mm -hmm. healthy. She's figuring it out. She's. Very, very competitive in spin class, which I respect. <laughs> All of it is about the surface stuff. Mm -hmm. But Maggie doesn't even really know what the internal stuff is. How is she going to figure out the surface stuff if she doesn't know what's underneath? Well, and I think that's a big journey for her in the book is that she focuses quite aggressively on the external, which I think a lot of us do. She really throws herself into that myth of the post-breakup glow up. And doesn't even realize because that's such an encouraged, like socially encouraged way to process a breakup, mm -hmm. to go to the gym and get really hot and get the good haircut and whatever. She doesn't even realize that it's part of her like more extended project of running away from the difficult feelings. You know, you're totally right that her focus on the external means that she doesn't even need to get involved with the internal. She can pretend that everything's fine and because she looks good, basically. Do you have a favorite moment for Maggie in this novel? Did you surprise yourself at any point where you were like, oh, 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 how did we get here? There's a moment at the end of the, towards the end of the book where Maggie has alienated, well, but she's alienated basically everyone in her life, but she's particularly screwed up with her friend, Amy, who's been nothing but lovely to her. Um, and there's a moment where she she's kind of given Amy some space to process their argument. And um, she does a big rom romantic comedy style gesture. Oh, yes, she does. <laughs> and it doesn't, you know, most of Maggie's things don't go totally to plan. And this doesn't either. But I was thinking about their friendship and what to do to bring them back to each other. Mm -hmm. And I just loved the idea of those kind of because they're totally overwrought moments that wouldn't really make sense in a romantic relationship between mm -hmm. uh, a couple. It's like sort of an odd behavior for a couple that have had a fight. But I think right. actually that kind of intensity suits female friendship a lot more in a way. And I, so I really liked writing a, a big romantic comedy gesture between friends. Do you have any favorite novels about friendship that are not your own book? Oh, that's such a good question. I just read The Book of Goose. Oh, I love that. Oh, hi. It's right over my shoulder. Yeah, I know. It reminded me of that. So good. And those was... girls are wild. Yeah. <laughs> and I actually just read another debut set in France about this kind of like spooky friendship mm -hmm. called Cursed Bread by mm -hmm. Sophie McIntosh. Mm -hmm. um, these are all sort of more sinister friendship books. And then I really like Ghosts by Dolly Alderton as well, which again is like a relationship book that ultimately comes back to you know, friendship, relationship. I do think like romantic comedies 
because they're books about relationships just in general, tend to get friendships so right. I feel like a lot of the book, like more dramatic books tend to be about people on their own or like people who are so in their head that you don't really see a ton of their external world or it's really focused on one romantic relationship. But I think in romantic comedies, you, you know, like Bridget Jones's diary, the friend group in that is amazing and so fully realized. Mm-hmm. And like, mm-hmm. I always come back to dinner party scenes. I think if you can write a dinner party, you can write anything. You have some pretty great set pieces in this book. I do want to say, but did you write linear? I mean, I know you said you wrote sort of the interstitial, the emails and the lists and all of that just as character studies. But once you sit down to build Maggie's world, because I mean, why do we always reserve world building for like science fiction and fantasy? I'm like, no, that's <laughs> why a novel exists <laughs> yeah. to build a world. But once you sit down, I mean, that's a lot of time in one person's head. A mm-hmm. lot of time. So are you sitting down and writing in a linear fashion? Or are you just saying, oh, here's what I'm thinking about now. Let's see what happens and where Maggie takes us. I'm a real outline girly. I love to outline. Um, I think that's a, a TV writing habit that I picked up because I did not used to love to outline. I always used to think, no, I just want to get to the scripting. That's the most fun part. But I was too young to know that actually the scripting is only really fun if you have a really solid outline. Because if the story is not working, then someone can come in and just rip all of this fun dialogue you wrote to shreds and it's useless and you have to start over. Um, so having a really airtight story structure is really important to me to start. And then my process with scripting and with the novel was once I had the outline, I wrote all the most fun parts first. All the basically I wrote in order of enthusiasm, the stuff okay. that I was excited to write, because then you get excited about the parts in between. The right. things that seem like they might just be kind of boring narrative bridges or whatever suddenly become the way you get from this fun thing to this fun thing. And you know that those are fun because you've already written them and filled them in and made them kind of crunchy and juicy and whatever. So yeah, I just, I always just like write what seems like the most fun that day (laughs) until there's nothing left. (laughs) Okay. That's a really good plan. But so are we talking bridge points like Maggie's job? Because she's got a couple of colleagues who are great and a couple of colleagues where I'm like, oh, I'm glad I don't work with that person. (laughs) I mean, you're, you are doing this balancing act and then, you know, there's the people she's dating and her family's kind of groovy. I like Maggie's family. They're, they're supportive, but not in her face about it and not giving her a rough go of, well, your plan fell through. They're kind of lovely. So can we just talk about outside of the friend group for a second and, Mm. and setting up because Maggie has a pretty great job that I wasn't expecting her to have. Yeah, Maggie is um, an early modern literature PhD student, which was, I guess, inspired by I did an MA in early modern literature in London. That's why I moved over here in the first place. And I really enjoyed it, but I don't think I, I also realized the limits of my own ability to enjoy it. Like the amount, I think in my class of like 15 MA students, only one person pursued a PhD. And the amount of passion you have to have to deal with the hours and the precarity and, you know, students and the intensity of the job. It's a really intense job to have mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and predicated on particularly on a lot of alone time. And Maggie is this person who doesn't really understand how bad she is at being alone. Mm-hmm. So I think I think it seemed like a good sort of job for her to have in that she's someone who was drawn to the external idea of being a PhD student and 
getting a doctorate and a job that seems to be incorporating her passion, but also a little important in her mind. And then actually the reality of so many decisions we make for aesthetic reasons is that you can't just sustain it on telling people you're doing a PhD. (laughs) So she's sort of struggling to keep up professionally and also like to understand her own level of passion for this job that requires so much of it. And she's figuring out how she feels about people. I can't really see Maggie at the front of a classroom. <laughs> like, I really, I, she's a great character. And, you know, ultimately, good stuff happens for her. She just <laughs> needs to bump around first. But, yeah, it always sort of seemed like, oh, Maggie really, like, she's got these big ideas about what she thinks she's supposed to do and mm-hmm. who she's supposed And none of it really aligns with who she is as a person. It's kind of wild to see where the disconnect is. Yeah, there's a lot of sort of expectation versus reality, kind of harsh realizations for her, I think, in that the year that the novel takes place over. And that's where a lot of the comedy comes from. And you've just done this piece for The New Yorker that, again, I mentioned the barking earlier. Yeah, the barking continued. So it's called Fictional Novel or Real Woman's Diary, How to Tell What You're Reading. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you and I have both been around for a while and this idea of, you know, women's fiction and it has to be this kind of thing. And, you know, I'm a big believer in read what you're going to read. But if I can laugh, too, that's great. I'm delighted. Mm -hmm. But where did this piece? Can we just talk about this piece for a second? Because it really (laughs) does sit very nicely with really good, actually. Yeah, I, I mean, I was thinking about it a lot. Obviously, you know, for the the press, for the novel, I've been answering the question varying levels of of directness but the question of how similar are you and the narrator basically of your novel and i i was sort of fed up with the question but i also know and wanted to acknowledge that i sometimes fall into that same trap when i'm reading of of assuming and i, I guess it's internalized misogyny or something of assuming that this must have happened or this must be based in someone's real life and i think I wanted to remind myself that that's not the case. And then also, you know, I have just written a novel about someone going through a similar experience to me. I should have given her brown hair. I should have just, but then that seems so silly. Do you know what I mean? I was like, I wanted to write a lot about body image Mm -hmm. and about what it's like to be a a size 12 woman of a certain, of like this age, or I guess of of a 29 year old uh, woman of that size. And like, I just had the most experience living in this this exact sort of physical form. So I thought, well, I'll make the character look like me. That's fine. People are going to make that elision in their minds anyway. And they really have. <laughs> yeah, it's a little frustrating, I have to say. I just, you know, I'm going to chalk it up to. And then there are times where I read a book and I'm like, I really don't want to know if any of this. Is- <laughs> no, I no. I just, I don't want to know. I I don't know if that's because I'm from Boston and we just don't like to know a lot of things. That's fine. It happens. It really does. But they're, you know, write the book you want to read. I get that. I absolutely Mm. get that. And I can see how story structure just becomes, you know, part of you sitting down. There's no way you can separate really when you've been doing this for so long. But the film rights have been sold for really good, actually. And you're working on the screenplay, right? So you're essentially stripping down You've created this world in this book, which moves very quickly, and there's a great cast, and a lot of stuff happens, and now you've got to strip it down to the studs to make it into a teleplay. I'm really excited about the possibilities of TV for this Mm -hmm. book because 
it's so intensely focused on Maggie's perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think having the kind of outside presence of the camera there is just going to allow us to play even more with that, the difference between how Maggie thinks everything is going and how it's Mm -hmm. actually going. And also maybe to give the audience a bit of a break from her as well. Like I would love, I think to do like an episode where Maggie doesn't feature and it's just her friends. Yeah, that would be great. You know, and to see them because, you know, one person in the group is having a terrible time and the other rest of them all have their own struggles in their own lives, but they're just not the subject of this novel or of Maggie's thoughts for most of the novel either. But it doesn't mean they're not happening. And I think it would be really nice to kind of sing the praises of supportive friend groups even a little bit more to show the things that they're balancing in addition to this kind of garbage tornado that's their friend. So just like to be able to expand on the stories and lives of these other characters who I became really, really fond of over the course of the book, basically. There's a storyline for someone in the group chat that is sort of almost the polar opposite of what Maggie's been going through. And it was just, it was a nice contrast to have. And of course, Maggie is completely oblivious because she's caught up in her own stuff. And then all of a sudden she's like, wait, this is, this is happening. Mm -hmm. And it was just, yeah, I would like to see more of that particular storyline as well. And yes, if I sound like I'm dancing around something, I am just go read really good, actually. Can we talk about how you found your voice, though, as Monica Heisey? I mean, you are very funny, but you're also very razor sharp. There's some stuff in here where you are not letting Maggie or her friends off the hook. So can we talk about some of the writers who helped make you who you are? Sure. God, um, I'm obsessed with this thing that I think the thing that unites all of the reading that I've done or that I've certainly done as when I was young. So when I was, I guess to start way back, I read a lot as a kid with my parents. Um, They they were big sort of books for your birthday (laughs) parents. Um, and even then the books that we were reading, I think were, were very, they were leaned very classical, but they were really funny, like Jane Austen and Charles Dickens. And then when I was guiding my own reading, I still kind of wanted that and looked for that. Um, Sheila Hetty's narrator and how should a person be says, you have to know where the funny is. If you know where the funny is, you know, everything. And I think that is basically the one guiding thing of all the writers that I'm into. They just have, even if the topics are very intense or very um, like intellectually complex or whatever, there's just still a sense of humor. And if there's not, I kind of can't get into it. So I'm really like Sheila, obviously knows where the funny is, is an incredible author. Um, Elif Bachiman, same thing. I read somewhere. Okay. My friend Lauren also remembers this quote existing. So it has to be real. But I asked her about it and she doesn't. I met her once and asked her about it and she doesn't remember saying it, but I read in an interview somewhere, she said her editing process for the idiot was if something made her laugh, she kept it in. And I was like, that's great. I um, love that. It's good. Right. Having read the idiot, I'm down with that. I'm, I, right. yeah, no, I, I hope that I would like that to be true. Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea, but I would yeah. like that to be true because here's the other thing for a long time, women were only considered funny if we were writing about domestic stuff. Right? Like yeah. Irma Bombeck. And it's like, okay, fine, whatever. But, you know, we can be Ryan Witty and, and, okay, Jane Austen has her place, all props. But, <laughs> you know, there are all sorts of different kinds of relationships. And it isn't just about settling down and having a family and a house and a wine cellar. 
Yeah. And you really are playing with all of these ideas, right? I mean, at one point, Maggie's like, I don't think I can pay her any rent. And then she realizes she's living in kind of a bad apartment. She's living <laughs> in kind of an icky apartment and ends up in a better place. And okay, there's a giant Great Dane and some other stuff that happens in the new place. But I mean, she really doesn't know what she doesn't know. Mm-hmm. Which is, I guess, the curse of being young, right? Like, even now promoting the book that I wrote three years ago about an experience that I had three years before that, I like, there are things already that I'm like, I remember that being true, but I don't relate to the version of myself that even thought that was relatable. You know, there are, there are things that I feel so far past and thankfully so. Right, right. (laughs) My Saturn return is over or whatever. Part of what I appreciate, too, about Really Good Actually, though, is the way you set up this world, and it's an emotional landscape that, you know, you don't have to be divorced to understand where Maggie's coming from. I mean, I know I said at the top of the show that this is really a coming-of-age story for her, and coming-of-age is not limited to adolescence. I have met some people very late in life who at least, you know, better you learn late in life than not at all, right? Yes, absolutely. Here she is, and... Her life is really messy, but she's trying. And I have to give her props for that. I mean, she really would like to maybe curl up in the fetal position under a table somewhere. But she does it. She gets out there and she figures it out and somehow doesn't blow up everything. Yeah, almost. (laughs) Almost, yes. But the temptation, I'm sure, for you as the writer is to, you know, turn the water on high and see what these people do. Mm. And yet you know, we get this really kind of realistic, fun, very funny, very, very screamingly funny. I mean, I had a couple of moments where, (laughs) wait a minute, what happened here? So, okay, you start with the funny when you're small. Obviously, the television writing you've done has been all of the funny. Do we get another novel after this? Or are you still like, how do you juggle all of that? Yeah, I actually feel so lucky to be able to kind of toggle between them because um, I feel like I've been saying in interviews, like writing a novel is so solitary, which isn't true once you sell the novel. And obviously working on a novel is so collaborative and there's a huge team of people. But the first draft is so solitary. It really is just you alone. And um, particularly if you're trying to write comedy, I really realized how intuitive and, and wonderful a system for writing comedy being with a group of other comedy writers is. Right, because right. you can tell, you know, based on whether people are laughing in the room, if you're going somewhere good. Um, or you can say, I don't know, I think it kind of needs to be something like this, but not this. And someone else can kind of fix your joke for you. You just need to have the starting nugget of it. And right. there was a period like 40,000 words into this novel where I was like, oh my God, no one's coming. It's just me. <laughs> and thankfully, obviously, once it sold, it wasn't just me, but there was, you know, a year where it was. And I'm about mm-hmm. to get into the drafting process for a new novel. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm kind of excited for it to be just me again. I, I worked on a TV show recently. Um, we just finished filming it, which is, and filming is like the ultimate collaborative process. There's like, 85 people that you're working really closely with every day for two months. Um, And that was wild. And I learned so much um, and was really grateful to have that experience. But I think now I'm like, you know what, it might not be so crazy to just be wake up late and work from bed and be just me for a while. So I feel pretty lucky to get to toggle between them. Is there anything that you learned 
while you were writing really good, actually. Did you teach yourself something where you're like, I don't have to do that again? Yeah, I think so. I think I was really nervous to start it. I I didn't start, I had the idea to start the book, you know, a couple of years before I really did. And then actually I took a painting class with my friend, Laura Daw, who's an artist. And I'm also very, I was also very scared to start painting because I have no visual skills whatsoever, but she showed us how she did it. And she kind of blocked out all of the, you know, I think maybe this is how, how painters work, but she just blocked out all of the big shadows first and then roughly put in where she wanted light. And the detail was the very, very last thing. And that just like completely freed me from feeling like I had to have a a first draft that was ready to go. I was like, no, I'm just blocking it out right now. It's kind of an extension of the outline more than it's a draft. Um, So I think I'll, I'll worry less about starting and just get going, which is nice. That's excellent. Do you miss Maggie and her group (laughs) chat now that the, I mean, you finished writing the book, obviously you are doing the screenplay and, but that's still a different, I mean, this was your first novel. You were really in it for a while. I mean, do you miss hanging out with these folks the way you did when you were creating this particular iteration of the world? I think I miss some of the characters more than others because there are some characters who are sort of based on people in my life and then some characters who are much more of a fiction. And I, who I really miss is Amy. I love, I loved getting to know Amy and like Amy, I think was a real exercise for me in thinking about a kind of woman who I know a lot of, but don't have Mm -hmm. a lot in my friend group. Right. And I was sort of like, why is that? What would it look like to be friend, better friends with those girls who are mm-hmm. kind of more my acquaintances? I got to go make some real life Amy friends, I think, because I just loved hanging out with her. It sounds like writing this novel actually made your life a lot bigger. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think hopefully that's sort of what fiction can do, not to get too lofty about it, because, you know, it was a way to take these thought experiments and then make them real kind of. Um, and it was, it was really rewarding in ways that I wasn't expecting. It's a great read. It is really, really good. Actually. It's just, it's fun and it's fast and it's relatable. And there's just so much good stuff in this novel. Monica, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. Really Good Actually is out now. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And Laura Zygman, you may remember Separation Anxiety from 2020. It came out right as, well, everything was changing. So a lot of us heard about it. A lot of us were able to do something cool with it. And then some people might have missed it because it was a really weird time for all of us. Laura's back with a new novel called Small World, which we're going to get to in a minute. But some of us remember Laura from 1998 and a novel called Animal Husbandry. And we might talk about that a little bit, but really, I want to talk about this pair of novels that you've just put out into the world in the last couple of years. Laura, it is so good to see you. It's been way too long. Niwa, so great to see you. It has been too long, but I'm I'm so glad to be here. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's set up Small World for listeners. Yeah, so Small World is a book, a novel about two uh, sisters who move in together as adults. They're both childless by design, and divorced, recently divorced. One sister moves back from California after living there for thirty over 30 years and, and ends up moving in with uh, Joyce, who lives in Cambridge, Mass. And um, I thought it would be really kind of a funny thing 
to imagine what would happen if my sister moved back from California, where she's lived for over 30 years. And and the the fun, <laughs> the humor that could be mined from, from siblings, especially sisters. Um, and I started the idea with um, something obviously from real life, which was that we had these neighbors in Cambridge mm-hmm. above us. And we're, I won't give away what they did above us. <laughs> it wasn't sex, but it was noisier than that. But um, the people who moved in right above us sort of opened a business. And we lived here and we were just deeply annoyed for a very long time. And I thought at the time, like, somehow I will turn this into um, the beginning of a novel. And so I ended up using that as a little bit of a of an excuse to start this novel and having the sisters, you know, deal with the noise and in their new living situation to finally deal with their childhood, which involved um, their middle sister who had died, who had a, dis- a severe disability and who died when she was 10. And their mother. We got to talk about Louise for a second. I love Joyce and Lydia. They're great. But we have to talk about Louise for a second. Mama is a force of nature. <laughs> As always, I take something from my real life. I grew up in a family that had um, lost a child. I was the third child, but my first sister, who um, was born first, she died when she was seven. She had a very rare bone disease, and so she didn't really live with us most of her life. She was institutionalized because of her condition, and then she died when she was seven. But my sister, Linda, who lives in California, she and I sort of grew up in the shadow of this grief. And so even though we didn't know her, we felt like, you know, we were just very much affected, obviously, by what had happened. And so in the novel, it's very different. Um, Eleanor, who is the sister with um, with CP and other issues, lives at home the whole time, most of her life, most of her 10 years, she lives at home. And Louise, their mother, it's the 70s. This part of the story takes place in the 70s. And Louise is kind of a an accidental activist. She becomes um, an advocate for their kids. And so she um, makes Eleanor really the center of attention in the family, which is on the one hand, a great, great thing. But on the other hand, has the effect of making um, Lydia and Joyce really feel excluded from the movement to include Eleanor and everything. So it's a double-edged sword. And it's funny because when I was growing up in, in, in outside Boston, the woman across the street from us was very much like this. She had mm-hmm. graduated from college. She was super smart. And she ended up running the Charles River Watershed Association, which was like an oh, environmental wow. thing. And she was in Congress. I mean, she was incredible, but she had no background except a passion. And that was something that was very inspiring at the time. And my parents were very involved in activism for um, the institution where my sister had lived. And so I kind of grew up with that feeling, but that's not how my family was. We weren't. Well, taking elements of your own life isn't, you know, it's not autofiction. <laughs> Let's yeah, be right. clear. This is not right. autofiction. You can mine your space. You can mine your experience. And you certcainly do. I mean, but let's be honest, too. You were not wearing a dog in a sling as you wrote Separation <laughs> Anxiety. Like, can right. we be clear about this? Like, yes, lady is a very important part of your family. But you were not, in fact, wearing a corgi in a no. baby sling. <laughs> but wanted to, but did not. Yeah, and I understand the wanting to, because, I mean, who doesn't love a dog? But part of it, when you're talking about the grief, I don't want people to get the idea that this book is only about Lydia and Joyce's grief. I mean, the two of them are also navigating being adults around each other when they don't really have any experience of each other in adulthood. I mean, they've been living 3,000 miles away for a very, very long time. And 
At one point, Lydia's explaining her divorce. Joyce is like, I don't even really remember my brother-in-law. I don't actually really know him. I have no idea what's going on. And what a truthful, funny moment, though, because I think a lot of us look around our families and go, do I even know? You? I mean, sibling, in-law, whatever, you look at these people and go, do I actually know you? <laughs> Who are you? Yeah, well, that's really true, especially if you live, you know, my sister and I have lived on different coasts since college. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, we would travel and see each other and all that. I mean, there are things you know about each other, and things you don't know. And, you know, people show you what they want to show you, myself included, on a visit. And so when Lydia and Joyce do move in, you're exactly right. They really, they don't know each other. Um, And, but yet they have that, those issues from childhood. And we all have those issues. You know, you get together at Thanksgiving or for the holidays or for a special occasion, and it always creeps up. And that's a lot of what this is. You know, when you're raised a certain way and you feel invisible in your family, and then you are like reunited as adults, but you're not really adults because you're still children. You're still those children who feel overlooked. And Lydia and Joyce, too. I mean, they felt so invisible as children, and now they're in that lovely stage of middle age (laughs) where women become invisible. It just happens. It's almost like it's overnight, and you're just kind of like, okay. I want to talk about this for a second, because middle age, it's similar territory to separation anxiety. I mean, you do, like, sort of through your 40s, you have your life and everything else, and then suddenly, wham. Yeah. It's a huge shift. I mean, separation anxiety, um, Judy, you know, is, is can't afford to get divorced and so is still living with her mm-hmm. husband, you know, and is is facing the death of a close friend. And and there's one scene toward the end of the book where she goes to Trader Joe's. I mean, this has happened to me a thousand. I, you know, my own feelings about Trader Joe's, but the enforced frivolity and hilarity of it is always annoying to me. But you know, when you go through the line and the guy, the cashier, in a scene, but it's happened to me, you know, super flirty with the woman in front of me and then gets to me, doesn't look up, doesn't ask why I chose the non I chose, didn't ask any questions about my food the way they did 10 years ago. You know, you can't help but feel kind of like, hey, I don't want to engage, but I want you to want to, I want to be the one that does. You know? So it's a very, it's very different. And on an, another level, it's totally freeing. You can walk down the street you can go outside with a shower cap in your head, which I've done, you know, from getting my hair blown out and raining. I mean, nobody cares. Nobody cares anymore what you look like because you're invisible at this age. You really are. I will say, though, that Joyce and Lydia both, they have really nice story arcs. You give them nice story arcs, even though they're invisible. They, they use it to their advantage yeah. in a lot of ways. And, and it sort of forces them to figure out what's next and how your sister fits into it, which, you know, things could have worked out differently (laughs) in the hands of a different writer. But you know what? Here's the thing. Joyce is writing poems not about being invisible, but she's lifting copy from this app called Small World, which is what? It's essentially next door. It's one of those like neighborhoody apps. And I love these poems and they are laugh out loud fun. They are ridiculous. They are absolutely absolutely ridiculous so can we talk about the genesis of these crazy poems oh, yeah. and Joyce's little obsession with next yeah. door because this this belonging not belonging thing this is a big part of Joyce exactly so like all my best ideas they come from someone else and I credit that in the acknowledgement <laughs> an old friend of mine from growing up he's a professor of American studies and he would post every couple months he would post 
poems from his Baltimore listserv. So he was basically just taking a post from like a next door thing. And he would just slice the post, a little paragraph, into sta- into lines of poetry and post it on Facebook. He didn't change a word. I was like so in love. I'm such a frustrated agent. I was like, you have to do a book. You have to do I love these. I want to eat these. I want to post them every day. And then he was like, well, I'm kind of busy. I have a job. So I was like, oh, I'll steal the idea and use it in my book. But <laughs> it was perfect because Joyce and Lydia, you know, grew up in a family where, you know, they had this big situation going on and they always felt overlooked and they always felt, especially Joyce, always felt like, you know, if she had a problem, it didn't mean anything because there's bigger problem, you know, bigger, um, their sister Eleanor had real problems. Um, so whatever they had was sort of my, and she loves the idea of sort of going on small world and looking at all these people who have these little problems, like what is the best hardware store? What, when do I take the trash out? How do you stop mice from, you know, whatever. And it's all about lost cats. Every post is about lost cats. And so she ends up kind of just escaping into the world of small world to find these posts, mm-hmm. turn them into poems. And when I first wrote the first draft of the book, I used actual posts because they're so <laughs> yeah. And then I turned the manuscript in and and my my editor was like, oh, the poems are so great. And I said, well, actually, you know, they're they're And she's like, oh, you can't do that. You can't use the actual. I had to rewrite them all. So I did rewrite them all. But I used them all as inspiration. The originals as inspiration because they were so brilliant. I loved them. I loved writing them. I still go on next door to control because they're so funny. And so, some of them are very moving too. Like you'll see all these annoying ones and then these very uh, service oriented ones. And then you see people who are so lonely posting their thoughts and feelings. And I mean, my God, you know, and Joyce doesn't post until she does, but we're going to leave readers to find out why Joyce posts because <laughs> it's an excellent moment. It's a, kind of dumb thing that she does, but it's an excellent moment. But this idea, you know, of being part of something and not being part of something and Joyce really, she does not. And this is a little more Joyce than Lydia because Lydia is just reserved no matter what. Lydia is just like, I am doing my own thing and the world can follow me or not. Joyce is kind of wrestling with this idea of, well, she doesn't know how to be back in the world. She was always married. Now she's not. And she's a little embarrassed he left. And watching her try to navigate this space between wanting to be part of something and frankly, not being very good at it. Like she's just not good at the details, even though she can write these goofy little poems. She's really not good at it. Doesn't realize a major point about a colleague, (laughs) like a major life point about a colleague. And she's like, what? And not in a bad way or a mean way or anything, just literally does not see it, just does not occur to her in any way, shape, or form. And I'm looking at Joyce going, what? So can we talk about voice for a second? Because Lydia and Joyce, obviously, their own people. But you're also, as the the author, creating this moment where you've got this tension between the grief and the invisibility and, and some big, hard stuff. And you're still really funny. I mean, I'm glad because there there is a lot of um, sort of sad stuff in here, but there's still, you know, the main point still is always there's humor in everything eventually. And I love what you pointed out. I mean, I think for me personally, and I know a lot of people, there is this push and pull of wanting to be seen, not wanting to be seen, wanting to be a part of things, not wanting to, you know, wanting to have a community, but not really wanting to be in it. So for for Joyce, it's the perfect, small world is the perfect thing because you can kind of poke in and out without actually having to go outside. Um, and be involved with people because that's when it gets really complicated and you have to 
really engage. And I think she, from her childhood, just has really mixed feelings about that engagement. It's kind of like, it's hard. And she has this job where she archives family and institutional videos and photographs and and, and she's so unobservant in real life. She misses all this other stuff about the people closest to her. She just had no idea. Oh, really? I had no idea. How could you have no idea? I don't know. But um, in her actual work life, you know, she's super observant. And she archives all these, you know, years and years of family photographs and and tinkers with them sometimes. Um, she's very, very keen on certain details, but misses those things in real life. She's a little judgy. Super judgy. Oh, she's just a little me. judgy. Oh, I am super judgy. <laughs> I'll never stop. I, you know, what? I think I think all people are a little judgy. I think that's sort of a baseline setting for a lot of folks. The question is, what do you do with the little judgy? Like, do you lock it in a box or do you share it abundantly? And I think the people who share abundantly might want to dial it back a little bit. But that's just I'm the- very privately judgy. See, I that's um, that that's a different. I I think that's a whole. Well, one, that's a different conversation, but also that's a whole different level of judgy. Oh, totally. You know, the ones who, though, who are just kind of like free to give their opinions about everything, and you're just looking at them going, okay. <laughs> like, really, the only thing you can say is, okay, I pass the peas. I really don't know what to do with this. And I could fight or I could eat. And I'm going to say pass the peas, please. But you took a little break. I mean, your last, your fourth novel came out in 06. And then separation anxiety lands in 20. And this, I think, is important, though, because you had not only a massive case of writer's block, the reasons for having writer's block are something that a lot of folks are dealing with now, because you're sandwich generation. You had a kid to raise, your parents were ailing, you had a lot going on, and suddenly you couldn't really do your own work and ended up ghostwriting. Yeah, you know, I had this really wild ride where I, you know, had worked in publishing, as you know, that's where we knew each other um, for 10 years. And then I left New York to move to D.C. to have kind of a normal life and finish my novel. And I got very lucky with that first one in the sense that I was able to quit my job, my day job and write. And I wrote three more novels, as you mentioned. And by the fourth one, that was it. It didn't do very well. And people don't like to talk about this because they assume once you have a career, it's just easy, easy peasy. And the more you have out, actually, you have a track record of failure, sales figure failure, which is what I hit at the fourth book. And by that point in 2006, I also was diagnosed with breast cancer. Then my parents got blah, blah, a million things happened. And just like everyone else, like, as you said, I was the sandwich generation. And And when you're a writer, you have to generate your own work. You can't just sit at your desk. Not that that's easy either, but you mm-hmm. can't just kind of like deal with the work that comes to you. You're supposed to come up with a plot and write it. It was impossible. I completely shut down. I couldn't do it. And I needed to earn a living. And so I did by accident turn to ghostwriting. I remember I posted about a, um, the self-help uh, this, um, reality show person who was a matchmaker. And they contacted me and said, do you want to write? And I was like, absolutely. I had no idea how to do it. And I ended up calling B.J. Novak, before B.J. Novak was B.J. Novak, he was just a kid from Newton. And his father is very well known here for being not just a great writer, but a really successful ghostwriter. And I had met Bill Novak, B.J.'s father, a long time ago. Anyway, I, he kind of gave me a tutorial on the phone how to do it. Okay. And that's how I started ghostwriting. But I was really lucky after that first book to, I worked with Wendy Davis, um, the state senator. Um, and then I worked with Eddie Azard, and he was great. 
And these books are very hard to write because they take a lot of time. And you're dealing with celebrities or people who are, you know, Eddie Azard was traveling the world, doing, you know, a tour. I mean, constantly traveling. And so you had to hook up. You know, it's logistically difficult. Mm -hmm. A lot of these projects are really fascinating. Fascinating to talk to somebody and hear their story. And most people have a really deep, painful, sad story to tell deep in there. And that's the most interesting thing. And you feel very honored to get to tell their story. And as much as I love doing it, I'm I'm glad not to do it for now because it is hard. The schedule is very hard. And also it comes back to voice though, because you have to step out of your own authorial voice and you've got to assume the voice of whoever it is you're writing on behalf of. And that's a high wire act. That's that's something that folks I don't think necessarily think about when they're reading a book because the whole idea is that that person's voice is the only one you hear. And, you know, that's that's not easy. What's funny, you mentioned that because when I was being schooled by by Bill Novak at that time, he said, this is not just, you know, the most important thing to remember is you as a ghostwriter, you're not right. It's not like you're writing an article for Vanity Fair about something. You are writing in their voice from the story they want to tell if they could write it themselves. And so it's very different. And so as a novelist, obviously, you know, you write in different voices and you write, you have to have that, you know, skill set to do that. Um, but it's what I missed most. It was both a relief at the time because I didn't have to do my own stuff. It was the thing I really missed most. I mean, having the, you know, the luxury of writing novels again and being able to tell a story, you know, through Joyce's voice or, you know, about a character like Lydia. I mean, it's such a it's such bliss, you know, when I finally get going. <laughs> yeah, I also had no idea, though, that B.J. Novak's dad was Bill Novak. I was like, I remember that name. <laughs> like, what? Such a great person. Just, Lovely guy. I, yeah. You know, I just, I remember seeing his name on like a million different things. He was just, he was, he's like a jackknife of a writer. I mean, there are certain people who, you know, you know what they're involved in or you know what they're, and you're just like, oh, yeah, of course, that makes perfect, perfect sense. Can we talk about process for a second? Because you just mentioned something, you know, again, when you finally get started on a book, right? So here's this gap, which for various and sundry reasons has happened, but you've got to get back at the desk. You're working on separation anxiety. And that took how long-ish? So it took, what happened was in that very long writer's period of writer's block, when I really could not sit down and fathom writing a novel, I took very little tiny baby steps and I remember in like 2011 or whatever there was a thing called extra normal um and it was script writing that you would have these animated characters you write a script so I would sit down and I would write a little it was called annoying conversations these little things and I made 75 of them and it felt like cheating because it didn't feel like writing but I made them in like 20 to 30 minutes I posted them but I didn't do anything with them, which was very fresh. I couldn't sell them. I couldn't monetize them. Nothing happened. So I felt like a failure. Then I wrote a script. I wrote a script. I tried to write a script from scratch. And so I wrote this kind of road trip movie script about a couple who couldn't afford to be divorced, but who was still living together. Right. And okay. <laughs> they loved it. Couldn't sell it. Loved it. Couldn't sell it. And so along the way, I just, and then I even more gave up because I was like, here I was trying to do it. And nothing was working. And then I really just completely stopped. And then in 2015, I I was let go from the job job that I had for an app here in Boston. And I had and I rented a shrinks office one day a week. 
in Cambridge, many shrinks, you know. And so by the hour, I was kind of creepy, but I was like, oh, this is great. I can't afford an office space. But I would go there on Mondays with my lab. And I and what I ended up realizing is that so for all the people who can't write for years and years, if you do little tiny things along the way, what happened was I ended up taking the script and and taking little pieces of it and starting from I said, I have a couple. I like the couple. It's not going to be a road trip novel because that won't work. But I'm going to start with that scene I really like. I had one little scene I really liked. And that was the seed for the novel. Without that, right. nothing is wasted. And there were little pieces of those videos. I remember doing one about a Prius. And I remember using that little thing about a Prius where it makes no noise in the novel. Um, the ultimate getaway vehicle. Like that. So it was like nothing that you do, even the smallest. If And, and I ended up really starting to write again. It sounds so goofy. When I just sort of discovered for myself, obviously Instagram was already out, but when I discovered using Instagram as like a little way to mini blog, it would that was where I started, right? It was like so sad, but that's if I could write a paragraph, I was like, okay. And I love what Elizabeth Strat says about writing in scenes. It's like if you can just write a little scene and a little paragraph on Instagram or that little video I made with each get a little scene. And somehow that's what start when you approach writing is like you have to sit down and write a novel. It's a horrible thing. Anyone who's written a novel knows it's like a mountain to climb. Yeah, and I'm starting one now. I'm like, I can't. I just can't. It's so much. But if you just break it down, if you break it down into little tiny pieces, which are scenes or little moments, that's how you start and that's how you move forward. And that's the only way to do it. I'm trying to convince myself of that again. <laughs> Procrastinate this new one. Um, yeah. Didn't Alice Hoffman also help get you back into the swing of things? You know, it's so funny because Miwa, you and I were both publicists. So yeah, when yeah, I, a million years Miwa, ago, <laughs> I don't want to know any writers. I don't like them. They're annoying. All they want is what they want. Like I mean, enough. I never. When I moved, then I moved to DC, and then I moved to Boston. And right. I was like, first, I wasn't really writing anymore. And secondly, who wants to hang out with writers? Not me. But what happened was, I left the suburbs after my parents said we moved to Cambridge. And I just happened to okay, right across the street, I could move my computer and I could show you across the street. Sue Miller lives directly across the street. <laughs> right next door, I could move my computer. The house next, I rent, they own. Um, I, right next door is Joan Wickersham, who wrote The Suicide Inn. Alice Hoffman was a very close friend of my close friend, Anne Leary. And Alice had just moved to, back to Cambridge. And so, yes, Alice and I became friends at the end of 2014. And she did nothing but ask me a million times, are you going to start another novel? You got to teach it. <laughs> Alice, who has like a novel idea every hour, she's brilliant and is such a hard worker. Yeah. She was just, just do it, just do it, just do it. And I and I had other friends too, who often checked in and said, just do it. Like, please, just write in. It doesn't have to be, doesn't have to be great. Just do it, you know? Right. And there was a real, like a relief in that. And also like, it was very moving to feel like people actually cared if I wrote again. And they were always very careful. They said, you know, we don't want to put too much pressure on you. And I was like, no, it's actually really nice for that. To, you know, for, but yes, Alice was really, really helpful. Very encouraging. She's just great. I mean, she's just, oh she's so warm and smart. And, you and she's know. had a career that has lasted and spanned as really long-term fans. And then she has young people who are discovering her. I mean, her just as a publishing perspective which i know like we that's how we look at things it's always like <laughs> always inside baseball and i'm like oh my god it's incredible that she has this career 
she's relevant. She still hits the bestseller list. What is happening? You know, you know, the bestseller list, that's a whole nother conversation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Good thing we don't have to talk about it because no one will hit it except certain, you know. It's such a weird, weird thing. But let's talk literary influences for a second because, yeah, you have your friends who you've also read. But let's talk about some of the writers who've made you Laura Zygman novelist. Well, I mean, the biggest one, of course, like everyone else, especially this year, was Joan Didion. I mean, she was one of the first writers I read that just completely got to write inside me. I loved Faulkner. I loved Sound and the Fury because it was so out there that I felt like, oh, you can just break the rules and write without punctuation and have whole, you know, you can do whatever. Um, And then after that, I mean, it's been people like, I love Tom Parada. He's a real, you know, who doesn't? I mean, who doesn't? And um, Jane Smiley, I used to love her work. I used to Moo. Um, (laughs) Moo. It's a great, she does not get enough credit for that book, but no. it's fantastic. And Age of Grief, I used to read Age of Grief mm-hmm. um, every year. I would read it. Okay, what have you been reading lately, though? Because I know you're procrastinating on this novel. I am a huge Mona Awad fan. I Funny. <laughs> I, were, um, I live in Cambridge, and Joanna Rakoff, who wrote My Salinger Year, among other things, and I have become good friends. And she was supposed to do an event with Mona, couldn't, and it was like, I am now getting um, jo- Joanna's sloppy seconds, which I am happy for. And so we did the event <laughs> with Mona, and and we became just, she's such a great person. She's brilliant. Anyway, I loved Bunny. I loved All's Well. I loved uh, 13 Ways of Looking at a Fat Girl, and her new one is called Rouge. Okay. In the fall. Oh, my God. <laughs> this, this is, is good like to know. Really brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Okay. Do you miss Joyce? And Lydia, now that you're now that you're done with Small World, now that you have to think about whatever the next one is, it's so funny because Mona and I um, were texting the other day about that. It takes you so long to sort of just get over mm-hmm. the procrastination and the dread and the horror of starting, and then you start and you create this world, and then you become so involved in this world that you have made and the people in it. And you, I totally miss it. I when I was writing Small World. I was very late. I was not very late with it, but I got a slight extension and I had to really like, i never had to sort of work that diligently on schedule and Mona and I had a step, but, but so I would work every single day. And there was something about the relief of having like being in this place and, and just getting it done and not really, I had no idea. I used to call it landing the plane. I could finally <laughs> up in the air yeah. Like, and I was like, for weeks, I was like, I don't know how to land. Like, I don't know what's going to, I had no idea what was going to happen. Nothing. And so it's both really terrifying because you're like, I have to write, I have to finish this and I don't know where I'm going right. with it. But there is such a blissful excitement of not knowing and, and figuring it out. Your characters will tell you, they will tell you what's going to happen because they are at that point, real people. And so all you have to do is just be like, what would Joyce do right now? Yeah, Not I have to. What do I want her to do, but what would she do? She would say this. Oh, and Lydia would say this. And so it becomes this really exciting thing and you do miss it. I miss, I really miss them. And you kind of mourn that thing that you've created and the ease you have with just slipping back into it every day. And now you have to, you have to start again. The ending is really satisfying. The oh, ending is so, so satisfying. And you know, I don't necessarily need, you know, quote unquote, happy ending, right? Yeah. Like, 
books end the way they end stories stories need to do what stories need to do and and i'm not looking for you know the swell of music at the end but this is such a satisfyingly quiet ending oh good that's exactly yeah i was really pleased i was really really and obviously we're not giving away the ending but i mean it was really like the way all of these different lines come back together. And one of the things that left me feeling though was, and and I sort of had this a little bit with separation anxiety, but I think more with, with small world is I think we need to redefine failure and the way we talk about failure and the way we think about it in our own lives, like failure actually, like we have all of these weird descriptions and other people's, like we ascribe so much to the idea of success and the markers and that's what I'm looking for yeah the markers of success and it's just like well actually I don't want that like that's just I I I don't want that and you know the best example I can come up with is you know women who choose not to have children and <laughs> there are a lot of us <laughs> there are a lot of us and we're okay with it and then there are some folks who are just like well why wouldn't you do that and it's like because and I love the fact that both Joyce and Lydia are just like, yeah, we don't have children. And yes, does it go back to their sister? Possibly, sure. But they're both okay. There is not a moment in this book where they're like, oh no, I have done the worst thing ever. I mean, yeah, the divorce is unpleasant for both of them, but they still each have something to learn. Yeah, I, I agree with you so much. I Ever since Animal Husbandry was published, when you experience a sort of a textbook, you know, success and that kind of thing we have a movie made all that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. people still find this is one of my favorite things because people think like oh you know when animal husbandry was turned into a movie called someone like you it was such a not great movie i'm not complaining but it wasn't the greatest movie. no one will admit that they were in it or made it or anything like that but when the movie came out it opened and closed really quickly didn't get very produced, whatever and people actually had the gall to come up to me and say so how did your movie do and oh, wait, seriously? <laughs> I'm sorry, what? <laughs> in my life where I actually had a comeback. I was like, not so great. How did your movie do? Like, are you going to shame me because you think I'm ashamed? I'm so happy. I got a movie. Like, I, that is yeah. the definition of like how we see success. It's like, oh, you had a movie, but it didn't do very well. Well, really? That's how you define? I'm so thrilled it got me. I don't even care. This is the thing. It's like, I am back with this novel, Small World. I don't know what's going to happen with it. We never know what's going to happen. It doesn't matter. Like, right. Because I love this book. It was something I wanted to write my whole life. Um, it has a gorgeous jacket by this incredible artist I love, Jessica Brilly, who's just phenomenal and gave me the original painting. It's on my wall. She's incredible. And I'm like, this is what success is. I got a, se- you know, I got a second chance with separation anxiety in 2020 global pandemic and to have yet another second chance. I mean, Mm -hmm. to be able to, you know, sell my next one to echo and then actually write it and Mm -hmm. and come out, who knows what's going to happen? Who cares? The success really in my core is like this, this moment, you know, the fact I get to talk to you, we haven't seen each other for so long. I know. I know. Yes. And yet the markers Really, the markers, the external markers are very different. You know, did you make the list? Did you make this? Did you make that? And that's all out of our control. And and we just have to take, you know, the wins where we get them. And this, for me, is like, it's bliss. I mean, for me, to be back with another novel. I hope I'm back with one after this, too. You know, that's that's the ultimate success. 
And that's the thing. I mean, these characters are great. The story is great. I mean, that balance of laugh out loud funny and oh, wow, wow. The context of the laugh out loud funny. It's such a joy to read. It's so smart. Laura, it's so smart, this book. It's so smart and the characters are great. Well, that's what I'm doing right now. (laughs) That's really nice to hear. Is there anything we missed? I don't think there is, but... I think you got it, especially with the ending. I think, you know, for me now, there's a real sense of realism about life that it's really hard and really good and it goes up and down and back and forth. And if you can leave the reader, maybe not with a super happy ending, because I don't want that either. I don't believe, except for very few people and good for them. But I really want always to leave a reader with just some hope. Like, and that's what I tried to do in separation anxiety. And that's what I really tried to do here, which is like, they are still hopeful. Like they have their life and whatever that looks like. And so, you know, that to me is the perfect ending. For yeah. A yeah. And that seems like a really good place. Yeah. To yeah. wrap this conversation too. <laughs> <laughs> I like ending on a hopeful note. What can I say? I mean, it's just, this is why we read, right? Absolutely. This is why we read. It may not be the happiest, like, you know, bunnies and whistles and, you know, birds and all of that. But sometimes you just, you get a cool thing that reminds you that words and stories are just amazing. Laura Zygmunt, thank you so much. Small World is out now. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. Great to talk to you. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off. We've got a special double shot episode today, so we've got a special TBR Top Off today. I've got two fantastic booksellers who are going to recommend books based off of today's authors. And we're going to go ahead and start with Jamie. Jamie, hello. Hi, Mark. All right. I'm going to talk about Dolly Alderton. You might know her name. For several years, she wrote a dating column in the Sunday Times. And it's all about her being a 20-something millennial in London and sort of all the mishaps and things that happen to her as she's dating and which I think all of us can relate to. Um, And every week she wrote about this messiness of sort of figuring out who you are while simultaneously trying to navigate all these different types of relationships in your life. During that time, she wrote a memoir. The book is called um, Everything I Know About Love. And uh, this book has had a resurgence lately because it's getting some love on Book Talk. And although it's not a fiction, um, I think a lot of people who read Monica's book will find a lot to like here. Certainly, there are stories about getting dumped. <laughs> and there are hilarious stories about getting drunk. Um, but a- above all, there are stories about the importance of friends. And Dolly's friends uh, stick around, they are there for her through thick and thin. And those close relationships to her are the key to bouncing back from all the messiness of these sort of failed dating relationships. In Monica's book, one of the tough lessons that Maggie learns is um, that having a supportive community of friends around you is just crucially important. You have to have people that you can talk to about all of this big stuff that's happening to you. And Dolly Alderton makes the same case in this memoir. This is not all serious, though. This is a laugh out loud funny book. And while it's clever and and all of that, it it does ring true. And I've had a few customers tell me this is their favorite memoir. Uh, They talk about how much they like her voice, how much they like her advice. It's smart advice. And uh, let them know at the end of the day that they weren't alone in the way that they were feeling. I've been there. Your 20s are tough. (laughs) 
There are huge emotions, um, and I'm not sure if you could pay me to go back and re-experience all those huge emotions again. Uh, I'd like to have my 20-year-old knees back, but um, I'm not sure that I I could handle uh, the sort of emotional devastation that comes from some of these relationships. So being able to laugh through the tears and while you're reflecting on it is, I imagine, you know, what's compelling about this book for a lot of my readers. It also plays with format in a fun way. And I should also mention that there is a BBC series of the same name. And I think it's on its second season um, of everything I, I know about love. Uh, Valentine's Day is right, down, right around the corner. So if you have a, a bestie who is feeling down um, right now, this would be a great gift for her, along with probably a box of tissues and a bottle of wine. <laughs> I'm going to get it for myself. Yay. <laughs> oh, fantastic. I love it. Such a good pick. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would never want to go back to my 20s. No, thank you. I made enough <laughs> terrible choices to uh, round out my whole lifetime. So hoorah. Madison, that leads us right to you, you wonderful bookseller, you. What do you got for us today? Today, I had Small World uh, by Laura Zygman. I'm recommending a book to go along with that book this week. And I chose Luck of the Titanic by Stacey Lee. It is a YA historical fiction, and I chose it purely because of the sibling bonds within the book. I don't know why I'm fascinated by like sibling bonds within literature. I think it's because I'm an only child. So I have that only child syndrome. And so I'm like, what's it like to have a sibling? Uh, So I just read about it. Um, But what I love about this book is like, it's such a strong sibling bond. So you have Val, who is our main protagonist in the book, and she is going off to find her twin brother. The last time she heard, he was working on this new boat that happens to be the Titanic. So she has to sneak her way onto the Titanic to try and find her brother and how they grew up, their father had them perform as like acrobats. So Val has this image in her head that she's going to find her brother and they're going to go to America and they're going to join the circus and they're going to have this magical, beautiful, dreamy life. And Jamie is more of a realist. He wants stability. He wants to be able to like provide for his family. So the whole story, while, you know, you're living history on the Titanic, which we all know how that, ended they are coming to conclusions about themselves not only as people but also as siblings because they have like this twin bond they have this twin connection and then it slowly just starts to unravel as like the historical aspects of the story unravel and you realize they don't have the same goals or the same dreams and then they're trying to find that out and their parents death both affected them different ways so you just see this beautiful story of like siblings unravel rather tragically um, again, because we all know what happened to the Titanic, but I will leave the ending open to what happens to the siblings on if they join the circus or not, or if they find that life of stability. But I chose it because I think the sibling bond is such like a magical way to tell a story, especially because it's not always what you seem. So it has the like, it can be tactful to add that like little twist or plot twist within your story, which is why I recommended this one to go along with Small World by Laura Zygmunt. I can say as the older sister to two younger sisters, it's complicated. <laughs> yes, and I am the youngest of six, so I get it as well. Sibling stuff is messy and beautiful and brilliant and horrifying all at the same time. Uh, nice picks, you both. <laughs> Thank you so much. 
Um, that's all we have for today, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in to Port Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Uh, you can also follow us at Barnes & Noble. Pretty simple. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. Jamie, where do you? Where can we get you? I'm at BN Leewood KS. Madison? I am at BN River Crossing. Yay. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Happy reading. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.